some rando on the tee on the way to work was to lick you, right? <laughs> that is something that you would never forget. And that would be a terrible experience. So it is that on a physical level, the tongue is suspect. It's really not to be trusted. It can even be weaponized. But it's also true spiritually that the human tongue is gross and often a weapon. Now, we know this at a basic level um, in dealing with children and how we teach children, right? There's an evil power to the tongue to negatively influence the lives of others. So we teach our children things like, if you have nothing nice to say, don't say anything at all, right? Or we, te- we teach this because children often have a lot of un- not nice things to say. And because children often say hurtful things, we teach kids to lie to themselves in rhythmic form. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words could never hurt me. We teach them another lie. I am rubber and you are glue. Whatever you say bounces off of me and sticks to you. Now, at best, these things are trying to give children perspective on whose words actually matter in life, and that's actually a really good thing. So mouths are dirty, right? How many of you had parents who threw the old soap in the mouth? Yeah, that's kind of a dying thing. It's losing the battle of popular parenting opinion now. I had a friend that used to get it, and I used to love the torture of it, but I was also terribly scared about getting it myself. You know, it was the old musty shower soap. But my point is that, of course, we have dirty mouths, and of course, words hurt. The tongue is one of the most destructive forces on the planet. So our text in James this morning says that that very thing, and it says so in a long tradition of biblical teaching on the human tongue. The book of James is often called the is often called the Proverbs of the New Testament. And there's lots of threads in James that you can flush out and find in the book of Proverbs. So, for instance, in Proverbs 10, 19, it says, When words are many, sin is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. So translation on that is, If your mouth is yapping, sin be happening. (laughs) The, The more you speak the greater likelihood there is that you are sinning. So the wise person exhibits caution with the words that they speak. And then positively, Proverbs 15, 4 says, a gentle tongue is like a tree of life. So in the Proverbs, we're cautioned against an unrestrained tongue that shoots off with many words. And on the other hand, we're told that there's a way to use the tongue that is life-giving. So wisdom in the believer is knowing when it is appropriate to speak and when it is appropriate to keep quiet. So in speaking about our tongues, the aim of James is the spiritual maturity of the believer. That's part of what the book of James is doing. It's drawing us towards what does a spiritually mature Christian look like. In other words, James would have the mature believer look more and more like Jesus in the way that they live their lives. So we've gone through some of this in chapter 1. James focused on trials and hardships and how that produces steadfastness in the Christian. Where he talked about the believer who heard the word of God and then was able to do the word of God. In chapter 2, he, he implores us to maintain hospitably, uh, to maintain impartiality, to treat people with equity and grace. That makes sense. Last week we heard from Pastor Justin on how saving faith is more than just saying faith, right? The mature Christian is one who demonstrates faith in obedience and action. 
So now what we have this morning is James is speaking to us about taming the tongue. The mature Christian is someone who recognizes the danger of the tongue and acts appropriately. So we'll start with James chapter 3, verse 1. And it says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. So if God asked any of us here in the room, who wants to be judged with greater strictness by a show of hands? Who would raise their hand? Not many of us, right? But it is true, scripturally, that teachers in the life of the church will be judged with greater strictness or with greater severity. And this makes me want to stop and leave right now. The stakes are high for the teacher because of the tongue's power of influence in people's lives. And we don't always think of teaching as a high-stakes profession, right? Everyone would agree and understand if James said, not many of you should become brain surgeons. Most of us would get that because of how high the stakes are, right? Life and death is literally in the balance. The brain surgeon needs a gifting and a training and a readiness to execute on that kind of responsibility. You don't, pay, you don't pick the man or the woman with the shaky hands to tinker around with your brain. James's focus is on the teacher, and he is concerned with the influence that speech has in the life of the community, and in particular, the teacher's influence in that particular community. So we do take this uh, pretty seriously here at Seven Mile Road because of this text and others like it. There is a weight and a responsibility that is placed on the teacher to not only know the truth and teach it, but to also live out what they're teaching. So the teacher's words in their life needs to include honesty and integrity and gentleness, among other things. So when I first started reading this, I thought that James's main concern would have been against false teaching, right? And that's not the case here. James is more concerned with the dangers of an uncontrollable tongue in a moral sense than he is in a false teaching doctrinal sense. And I think that's important. So yes, of course, there's judgment and it's severe on teachers who promote false doctrine and lead people away from God and rob Christ of his glory. But here, James is cautioning against teachers' destructive use of the tongue in the life of a community of believers. And the way that works is, if I become entrusted to you, and you care about what I say, and you see me as having teaching authority in the church, and I use whatever charisma I have, and influence I have, and win- winsomeness that I might have, and skill and speech that I have to slander someone, or to attack someone, to complain about someone, or to quarrel and fight, then what I'm doing is I'm placing the life of this community in peril. So if as a teacher with authority and influence in the church I do that, I would cause way greater harm than I would if I was not a teacher and elder of the church. So the caution is real and it's well taken. Uh, We don't rush people into the office of teacher. We don't just take any random person who raises their hand and says that they want to teach and put them in the pulpit or, or have them lead one of our gospel communities or even have them teach our children. We take that seriously. The teacher needs to have a qualified life, um, upright, self-controlled, because they face a greater strictness in judgment. So this is a particularly hard message for me, because I'm loud, I'm half Italian, I think that has something to do with it, 
um, I'm sarcastic, right? And to be honest, this text of Scripture is telling me that those things can be dangerous, right? So it's true that I often come out and say some crazy things. And what happens is when I come to this text, it stops my mouth, right? I'm only speaking to you now about it because I have to. For some reason, Tim gave me this sermon. So James is cautioning against the office of teacher. The person who aspires to be a teacher should have self-control over their mouth. They need to be a mature believer in that way. Now, with that said, in not removing the directness or the sharpness of James's words at all, James confesses this next verse. He says that we all stumble in many ways. And notice that he includes himself. He says, we all stumble. Me, you, all of us. And if you look at the word stumble here, it's the same as in verse 2.10. James is using the word that we translate as fail. So to stumble is to fall, to fall spiritually is to fail, to fail before God is to sin. And the picture there is if you're walking down the street, all seems fine, you're smiling, you're happy, but there's a lip of concrete on the sidewalk that you don't see, your toe hits it, you stumble, stumble forward, everyone sees it and you feel stupid. That's what sin is like in the life of the believer, and it happens to all of us. It's just that the more public the life, as in the case of a teacher, the more disastrous the stumbling can be. So even an apostle such as James was a sinner who stumbled in many ways. And the person who is called to teach needs to keep this in view. There's always a danger in speech, uh, and stopping the sin of the tongue is one of the hardest things to control. So if we need to approach the office of teacher with caution because its power to influence is dangerous and we all sin, then praise Jesus that God had James pen this verse, right? We all stumble in many ways. And you can ask, that. well, then why is it there? And that verse is there to remind us that, including teachers, we all sin and we all need forgiveness and we all have our many stumblings. It's as simple as that, right? The mature believer, the one who looks to the word of God, sees it, does it, is still going to stumble. And they need their life, they need to live their life in open faith and repentance in the community of believers. Now this next verse says, if anyone does not stumble, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. So James has already stated that we all do stumble, which means he's not contradicting what he said here by stating that moral perfection is achievable for us. What he's getting at is this. The person who is gaining control over their tongue is a maturing believer indeed. Now, before we move on to James's uh, many illustrations, I want to clear up a potential misconception with James's use of the tongue. And this is important. Because he's basically going to go forward and personify the tongue and make it to blame for a whole ton of wickedness in the world. But we know that the tongue in itself is not this independent, responsible agent. Simply, it's simply doing someone else's bidding, right? So it's not as if the actual tongue is the evil thing inside of man And if only you could not speak or you could put a muzzle on, you would cease to sin. That's not what James is saying. Right? So we go to Matthew 12, and Jesus said, 
for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So with this, a simple way to understand it is we know that the tongue bone is connected to the heart bone, in a sense. The tongue is simply a pawn of the heart. The tongue is like a thermometer of the heart. If you want to know the spiritual health of the heart, listen to the tongue. This is what James is getting at. So in Hebrew thought, the focus was often on the guilty member rather than the heart issue, even though they understood that it was a heart, soul, internal issue that was going on. So for instance, Jesus says stuff like, if your eye causes you to sin, cut it out. Or if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. What's that? That's just hyperbole, right? It's meant to drive home how important the issue is. You should be looking at your eye. You should be looking at your hand. You should be listening to your tongue and assessing the action of these things because it will be demonstrating for you what the heart wants, what the heart believes, what the heart desires. So with that in view, James gives us two somewhat fun illustrations. And the first is, the use of a bridle and its bit in a horse's mouth. Now, this is easy to understand because horses are tremendous creatures. I would even go so far as to say that horses are scary. So they're not scary in the horror movie, It Clown Scary, but they're scary in the way that it would be if, like, dinosaurs were still walking the earth, just not as dramatic. So I haven't had much experience with horses in my life. I've seen them from far away. But if you get up close to them, they're absolutely massive, and they're like steroid jacked, right? They weigh 2,000 pounds, and they can run 30 miles an hour. If something that weighed 2,000 pounds running 30 miles an hour ran into you, it would be the end of your life as you know it. So as an aside, Laura and I went horseback riding in the mountains of New Hampshire some years ago. It was, it was very romantic. Um, we had a guide. And the horses were maintaining this very, very slow walk. It was perfect for me. It's what I was comfortable with. You could literally feel the muscles of the horse as it walked. And you could tell that you were riding something that was very heavy and very powerful. And Laura happened to experience firsthand why they use the term horsepower when they were referring to a car getting off the line. We were slowly walking. We're in an open field, and it was nearing the end of our mountain pilgrimage. And her horse somehow got startled and just took off. And I'm watching like, well, Laura's dead now. I guess I'm going <laughs> to have a hard road ahead. And she just grabbed it and was like this, right? It's hard to control the will of a horse, but she figured it out and she's still with us today. <laughs> Horses are massive, muscular, unwieldy. But if you put headgear on them and you put a bit in their mouth, you can determine where they will go. The bridle and the bit, they're relatively light. You can throw them around. But if you throw them on the back of a 2,000-pound horse and you put it on its head, you can steer it wherever you want. The will of the horse is then controlled by the, the rider using the bridle. So that's simple to understand. The second analogy that James uses is a ship. Ships, too, are very big but they are steered by a very small piece of equipment in the back called a rudder. So it would be the same thing as if we said an 18-wheel tractor-trailer truck, which is big and massive, is 
where it goes is determined by a very small round steering wheel. The ship and the truck are extremely powerful, but they submit to a very small member. So these illustrations are perfect. If, If you have a massive ship and the rudder is broken, you can crash it into rocks, you can crash it into other boats and hurt people. Or if you jump on a horse without a bridle and a bit, you might plow into an innocent bystander. But if you throw on the bridle, you can waltz gracefully. It is this way with the tongue inside of a, a person, inside of us. It's so tiny, the tongue is usually about four inches, yet it has this incredible power to impact life. Both yours in speaking and others in hearing what you've said. So now this would be fine if we were holy, but the problem, of course, is that we're not. And so the use of our tongue is capable of great evil, and this is where James directs us next. He says in this next verse, How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. So words are like fire. In hip-hop, it's a good thing. They say, he spit hot fire. In scripture, it's a bad thing. The tiny things that you can say can literally burn an entire forest down. Tongues are like fire. They both flicker, they make noise, and they damage stuff. So think about this, right? If you have kids or you were a kid at one point, which you all were, think about how important words are from people that have influence in your life such as a parent or an older brother or an older sister. And the younger the child is, the more crucial it is to be careful with the things that are said, right? If we speak harshly or we're cruel with our words or we're overbearing in our expectations in the way we communicate our frustrations with their failures, these things end up shaping and impacting a child's relational formation for the rest of their life as they're adults, so this is, this is really getting to the heart of the influence and responsibilities that we have concerning our tongues. It's not only the actions that we take in the home, but it's the words that we say. So words can figuratively, figuratively burn houses down. Think about how important words are in the health of a marriage. I love you. I can't believe you love me too. I am so grateful to God for you. You look beautiful. Those are words that are going to build a marriage, right? Why did you leave the toilet seat up? I bought a dog. We're going vegetarian tonight. Those are words Those are words that will burn a marriage to the ground. Think about work. You can spend years at work building a career, being promoted, leading people, creating value for your company, and then one day, for whatever reason... You lose it, and you shoot your mouth off in the wrong way or to the wrong person, and your whole career comes crashing down, right? You've burned your job to the ground with the words that you've said. The wrong words can undo years of right words and set into motion something that we never intended. So it's this way that the tongue is like a fire. And James also says that the tongue is a world of unrighteousness. What's a world like? For one thing, it's huge. It's vast. If we didn't have maps or we didn't have images from space, we would probably think that the world was virtually endless. The tongue is so tiny, but yet it can produce worlds of wickedness, vast 
It's like a world in what it can do. Think about how unrighteousness came into the world in the first place. It was through the use of speech. As Adam, as Adam considered and bought into the worldly wisdom as spoken by Satan. So James is trying to sink the point here on the dangers of the tongue, and we're going to let him continue to do that. The next verse says that the tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. How many of you would have come to church this morning with a giant mustard stain on your shirt? No. You might let your kids come like that because nobody has time for that in the morning, but you wouldn't come like that, right? Why? Because stains ruin something that otherwise would be perfectly fine. You look at a person and you think, hey, legs like me, eyes like me, face like me, nose like me, nothing wrong there. But then they open their mouth and out comes hatred or lies or flattery. The tongue can ruin something that otherwise has integrity. In that way, it stains. And as for the course of life, as James says it, commentators assume that James's reference here is to the whole world. It's people in all the generations from one generation to the, ne- the next don't escape the malice of the tongue in its uses. Like a consuming fire, it spreads forth from the source and affects far more than the person speaking it affects the entire course of the world and all life that's on it. So at this point, you might be tempted to object or you might be tempted to say, but the tongue doesn't have to be used this way. And the confused call goes out, why can't we all just get along? Well, this next verse is why we don't. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. So a couple of weeks ago, we went to the aquarium, and we spent an hour and a half and $75 plus parking. It was great. It was expensive, but it was fun. Um, They have stuff like electric eels. They have poisonous frogs. They have massive sea turtles. They have sharks. Mankind is able to trap and control all kinds of things. But mankind is not able to control the, destuct- the destructive force of the tongue. And that's James's point here. He says that the tongue is a restless evil. You can translate that word restless as unstable. The world and its many tongues are like active volcanoes just waiting to go off. And this is the way that the world is. The restless evil of the tongue is part and parcel to the depravity of man. And so we read hard words, like in Romans chapter 3, it says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Those are hard words. And hear this. Their throat is like an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. So those are strong words about the heart of man, the heart's disbelief, and the poisonous use of the tongue. 
And we come to this last section of the text, and James says, with it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond produce yield fresh water. So we conclude the text with, with highlighting a terrible inconsistency. It simply should not be that we confess Jesus as Lord and profess his gospel with our mouth and then the next moment speak hateful, hurtful, and harmful things to another image bearer of God. We not only insult God when we do that because he owns and made the person we are cursing, but our blessing God then becomes hypocrisy. It's a dangerous thing. So James goes to the natural world, natural world to highlight the inconsistency in the contradictory nature of man. And it becomes a Q&A between James and his readers. The honest answer is no. Fresh water and salt water don't come from the same spring. And fig trees are not the same thing as olive trees and so on. So it is that the Christian is not to be a place where both God is blessed but fellow man is cursed. The responsibility of the Christian is to have a heart that loves God, loves neighbor, and then speaks in a way that reflects that love, right? So now as we come to a close, what do we do with this? Do we just say, go do better with your mouth, you wretches? No, we don't do that, right? That would be what we call moralism, right? Tell people what to do and expect them to go and do it so that they can get right. And that, that's not gospel, right? There's no power there. There's no life there. Uh, many of us as Christians have lived there and found it to be a place of death where you never meet the standard or you think you're meeting the standard or so you think and it fills you with pride and then the moment comes and you come crashing back down to the reality of your depravity and the uncontrollable heart that drives the tongue into all kinds of craziness. So how do we understand James's call to be mindful of the tongue's perils? And the way we do that is we go back to this verse that he said, we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man able to bridle his whole body. Who ultimately is the perfect man? Who never stumbled and controlled the entire course of his life to a holy end. It's Jesus, and it's why we call him Lord and Savior, right? He came for us, speaking truth, speaking the very words of God as the word of God. And when he spoke to people his words, it brought life and blessing. The message from his mouth during his life were words of life. And think through the agony that he faced at the cross. And remember that scripture says that like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter and like a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In the worst of trials, he didn't curse, he didn't accuse, he didn't even open his mouth. How badly the human tongue would want to get even in that situation, even in the small ways of just spouting back some anger. But on our behalf, Jesus didn't say anything. 
and he went to his death in silence. He goes to the tree, he dies for your mouth, he dies for your tongue, he dies for everything wrong that you've ever said. He dies so that you can have new life in God in where your tongue is redeemed for God's purposes. So this is, this is so important to get, so don't miss this part. Knowing and believing the gospel is actually how you bring your tongue into submission. Right? The truth is that every one of us have had a fiery mouth, a world of unrighteousness coming from our tongue as we conform to the world. All of us have used the poison of our tongue to tear down or hurt another person. And the redemption of our tongues is not in trying harder, although hopefully you want to, right? It's in recognizing that the perfect man, Jesus, with his perfect use of his words, with his perfect speech, with his perfect quietness at times, died in our place so that although our mouths are often a spring of contradiction, we can be forgiven and made new. And that's the final application here. The point of James calling to our attention the ways in which we sin with our mouths is so that we can repent of it and turn to Jesus for the healing of it, the cleansing of it. So if you're sitting here and you're thinking through all the ways in which you've participated in gossip, the ways in which you might have cut someone down when they weren't around, the dirty ways in which you've been joking, the hurtful ways in which you've been speaking to the people in your life, in your home, in your work, then confess that in your cleansing is at the cross of Christ. This is where the mature believer starts and stays. They start with the simplicity of Jesus and his gospel, and they continue to drink from the well of Jesus and his gospel. So if you're living there at the gospel well, and that is what your heart is set on, then from your mouth will start to pour forth praises to Christ, right? You won't do it perfectly, but you will find that your heart's desire is going to be for the building up and loving of your neighbor, and your mouth will start to be trained to do so. You'll find that you're more likely to be silent when silence is needed, and that you'll be more bold to speak when speech is needed. The control of our mouths and the cleansing of our speech starts with Christ, and that's what we want to grab a hold of this morning. So let's bring that to the Father in prayer. Father, we love you, and every one of us has used our tongue in a way that we shouldn't. Our heart is just a factory of sinful desire, and from that comes a tongue that is uncontrollable and is often hurtful. And Lord, we just confess that this morning, that we are a people with a dirty mouth often and unclean lips, and we need the cleansing power of Christ to be made new, to have our tongue redeemed so that the words that come from our mouth are uplifting and life-giving and show people the love that Christ has for them. Lord, would we, would we be a church that is marked, for, marked by words that are gracious and helpful and uplifting? And we'll give Jesus the praise for this. Amen.